0: Father God, Lord, we come before your presence this morning needing you to move. Father, we need your power in this place to, to work through your word as you've promised to do. Lord, you've said that you would, uh, your word would not return void. And so, Father Lord, this morning we pray that you would move mightily in such a way that it changes and convicts hearts this morning. And Father, we pray that uh, it's through the word that you would have us see that there's been a greater exodus than what the children of Israel celebrated year in and year out. Father, may we be changed by the hearing of your words. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I invite you to turn to the Gospel according to St. Mark. The Gospel according to St. Mark. Chapter 14 is where we'll take our text this morning. Uh, and This morning we're setting our eyes on Easter and the days leading up to the crucifixion of Christ uh, by returning to our sermon series in Mark's Gospel. Now, if you've been here uh, for the last three years, you know like, uh, Mark's is, also, is one of the shortest Gospels. It is the shortest Gospel wrote, uh, and it seems to be taking this pastor an extraordinarily length of time to actually preach through it. But that's okay. We're going to get there in the next couple of weeks. We're going to make our way through preaching through the entire Gospel of Mark, and we'll land the plane of this sermon series on Resurrection Sunday. Uh, let me set the stage for us, since it's been a minute since we've been in this gospel. We've been uh, bouncing around a couple different sermons here, but let me set the stage on the journey Mark's been taking us on. As Mark was writing his gospel, he had as his aim to get you to see one thing, that is that Jesus is the king with the hope that you would put your faith in him. You will notice as you read Mark's gospel, it's unlike any of the other gospel accounts Because Mark wastes very little time in getting you to see what he wants you to see. As you read his account, you'll notice that he does not include a genealogy for Christ as as the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke do. But rather, Mark jumps full in, feet first, into the Gospel narrative. And he moves, as you read the stories, he moves from one story to another in rapid succession, using transitional statements like, and immediately... Or, and, and then all of a sudden, and, and now. This is because Mark is laying out for us in a logical step-by-step structure to get us to see and lead us into saving faith in Christ and to follow him as a committed disciple. That's his reason why he wrote the book. Mark's gospel is broken into two sections. The first half runs until uh, about uh, chapter 8, verse 30, about the middle of the chapter there with the theme being in the first half of Mark's gospel, is that the Jesus is God's Messiah King. The Jews had long awaited the coming of the Messiah King. And Mark's point is he's here. It's now. It's happening. We see Jesus introduced his preaching and the conflicts that uh, ensue from that. And we see his identity revealed from chapters, uh, cha- the middle of chapter 4 to the end of chapter 8, the middle of chapter Hey, his identity is revealed. It's right where we got the, the sermon series, this, uh, this Who is Jesus? One of Mark's uh, undercurrent under themes that he's wrestling with through his text is, Who is this guy? As a matter of fact, it's what the disciples ask. Uh, They're at the end of chapter 4, after Jesus calms the storm. And they say to themselves, Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? And we see that. We see that come to, in the first half of Mark's gospel. That's what he's telling you. The second half of the gospel begins in uh, chapter 8, verse 31, immediately after uh, uh, the disciple Peter says that you are the Messiah. right? He, he recognizes partially who Jesus is. And immediately after that, it says this, And he began to teach them, this is Jesus teaching his disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, And be killed, and after three days, rise again. It's like Mark's gospel takes a a, a rather sudden right turn. Because now Mark has moved off of understanding that Jesus is God's Messiah King to Jesus is God's Messiah King who's crucified. Each of these halves have their own importance. But in our section today as we dig into chapter 14... Um, what what Mark shows us is the the, the real meat of what he's writing, the real reason he's getting to where he's going. This is more important than the first half. Let me say what I mean by that. If you read Mark's gospel, and you're the kind of person who gravitates to look at Jesus' miracles, look at all the good he's done, look at him casting out demons, you say that's the main point of the story, then you've read Mark wrongly. That's not to say that it's not important, that the miracles of Christ are not important. This doesn't mean that the casting out of demons isn't important. As a matter of fact, it's all Scripture. But as we read the Scriptures, we read the Scriptures as we read them in our daily devotions, one thing we should continually be asking ourselves is, why didn't Mark put this here? Why has he told the story this way? Why has he put this story before this one or in between this one? Where is this all going? Why did Mark write these details for us and arrange them in such a way? We should ask ourselves that question as we read the Scriptures. This will help you immensely as you study the Scriptures on your own. This will help you to see the glory of Christ more clearly. This will help you see what the Spirit wants you to see when you read the Scriptures like this. So let, me, let, me, let me say it like this. This is Mark told the story of Jesus' miracles. And Mark tells the story of Jesus casting out demons so that you would see Jesus is God's Messiah King. And then you would be shocked like the rest of the disciples when this Messiah King is crucified. You see what I say when I say this is more important than the other. In our text this morning, we'll see this, that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb of God who will die for the sins of the world, which inaugurates a new type of exodus. And all this is in accordance with the will of God. Let me give you a map Three points, and I'll get out your way. Uh, Number one, Jesus is always in control. Number two, Jesus was not surprised by his own betrayal. And number three, Jesus prepared the Last Supper and began a new Exodus. That's our text this morning. It's already been read for us, but let's look at the text here. Number one, Jesus is always in control. Look at verse 12 with me. And on the first day, Mark 14 verse 12, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So here's Jesus and his crew in Jerusalem on Passover day. It's time for the Passover, which is also called the first day of unleavened bread. little history lesson for us here. This is a seven day feast that the Jewish people would celebrate year in and year out. As As a matter of fact, the most important event on the calendar Jerusalem would have been crowded at this point. The the feast celebrated the event of the Exodus that you can read about in the book of Exodus. When God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. The Passover celebration, which begins the celebration week, recalled to the disciples' mind and to all the children of God's mind the decisive event which brought about their rescue. You see, God had sent a series of plagues to, on Egypt to persuade the Pharaoh to let God's people go. The final plague, the angel of death, passed over Egypt, killing the firstborn. God instructed his people to sacrifice a lamb and mark the doors of their homes with its blood so that the angel would pass over them. This is why, as a matter of fact, it's called the, the Passover Celebration. And so central to the celebration was this ritual sacrifice in the temple of a year-old, unblemished lamb. Sacrifice would take place during the day, and then that lamb would be eaten in the evening in family gatherings and private houses throughout the city. This is known as the Passover meal. So you have the Passover, the actual sacrificing of the lamb, then you have the Passover meal in the evenings. Now you might be wondering, as Brother Timmy was this morning when he was comparing unleavened bread with unleaded oil, which has nothing to do with each other except for the fact that they include the word un in it. Unleavened bread is what you get when you make bread without a rising agent, yeast. And I'm no baker, but I know how to cook. And so, so unleavened bread is what you get when you make bread without yeast. This is important because when God's people left Egypt... They had no time for the bread to actually rise. Go back, read Exodus. This is why it's called unleavened bread. They left their house to escape Egypt. They had no time to let the bread actually leaven, therefore they didn't even grab it. And when they left Egypt, it was the first thing that they did was to bake unleavened bread. It was during the Passover meal that God's people remembered what God had done for them. And also... To long for the day when he would finally rescue his people once and for all. Now all this is important to understand the context of what Jesus is about to speak into this morning. Here Jesus and his crew in Jerusalem and are wondering, Jesus, where are we going to have this meal at? Look at verse 13. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And so here they're wondering, they're in the city. You can just imagine the amount of people uh, swelling in the city and they're like, Jesus, we didn't book an Airbnb. Where are we going to go? And so Jesus tells his disciples, Go until you see a man carrying water. Now this would have been, in Mark's day, his, his first readers would have heard this and immediately their ears would have perked up. Why? Because it wasn't the men who carried the water. It was the women or the slaves who carried the water. And yet Jesus says, go, look for the man carrying the water and then, and then to follow him to a specific house where they were to tell the master of that house, listen, the teacher, Jesus doesn't even say, hey, I'm Jesus the Christ, I'm Jesus, the one you've been hearing all these miracles about. I'm Jesus who has raised the dead. but Rather, the teacher, that's all he says, the teacher wants to know where the guest room is so that he can have Passover meal with his disciples. Jesus told the disciples then that the master would show them a large upper room furnished and ready. And Notice how it ends in verse 16, this little story. And The disciples set out, went to the city and found it just as he told them and they prepared the Passover. Now, is it possible that Jesus knew this man? Yeah, it's possible. It is possible. But notice the details that Mark is giving the reader in the story here. Notice the details he's giving you in the story here. Mark doesn't tell you that he knows this man. As a matter of fact, the whole thing kind of rings of like, this can't be true. You see, the reason is is because Mark wants you to see that this is a supernatural kind of knowledge that Christ had supernatural. The two disciples did exactly as Jesus said. And so they get into the room, and there they begin to prepare the Passover meal. But they had no idea that there was an even greater Passover unfolding as Jesus prepared himself to be our Passover lamb, which is exactly what Paul calls Jesus in 1 Corinthians 5-7. John the Baptist declared in John 1, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of Of the world. You see, Jesus is our Passover lamb, fam. Mark's point in including this story about the finding of a room exactly as Jesus had prophesied and said it would be is so that we would see that all of this was intentional. It was intentional. None of it is by accident or mistake. You understand? The resurrection story did not happen on accident. And this is so important. In the way that we actually live our lives, these are not random events out of which God somehow, some way, managed to work some good. Rather, these events are sovereignly determined by God Himself. You see, the same thing happened in Mark chapter eleven in the way that Jesus prepared to enter Jerusalem on a donkey, very similar to the story he told the, how the disciples to actually go find the donkey. You see, the point in all of this is that Jesus is in control. The outworkings and application then for our lives are far-reaching because Jesus is always in control. Jesus is in control when it appeared they had no place to stay in on Passover. Jesus is in control when he is being betrayed into the hands of Pontius Pilate. Jesus is in control when the Roman soldiers spit on on his face. Jesus is in control when they drove the nails into his hands and into his feet. Jesus is in control when it appears as if the enemy is winning. Jesus is in control when the elite of the world began putting the apostles to death. Jesus is in control when you rebelled against God and spat in his face. Jesus is in control when you stood condemned before a holy God and yet found grace. Jesus is in control when you lost a loved one, a spouse, a child, a parent. Jesus is in control, fam, when you see the brokenness in the world around you, drug addiction, divorce, and death. You see, the framing of your perspective on the biblical story impacts your daily life more than you think. Understand, life is not a chess game in which God doesn't know the move that you're going to make and yet somehow pulls out a dub. You see, life is is where God is fully in control. All of your life, all of your life was known to God before you ever held a thought in your mind. The Father knew what your days would hold before you would ever hold a thought in your mind. Jesus' family is always in control. That's the point of this story. Number two, Jesus was not surprised by his betrayal. Look at verse 17. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So if Jesus is in complete control of all events leading up to his death, then he was not surprised by this betrayal. Notice that it is while they were reclining at the table and eating that Jesus begins to utter words, which must have sent a chill down every spine in that room. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. How did Jesus know this? Mark doesn't tell us how he knew, but just that he knew. And notice the disciples respond out of a place of grief and, and soul-searching. Each of them, each of them ask, Is it I? Put yourself in the room there. Smell the, the savory gaminess of the roasted lamb. Fill the dust on your feet from the days walking under the hot Jerusalem sun. Sense the quietness and yet familiarity of that moment. Many times you've had meals with this Jesus. Here before you is the man you've walked with for three years. You've seen miraculous things, so miraculous that when you tried to tell your family about it, they didn't believe you. You've seen this man interact with everyone around him with love and grace. You've given your life to him. You've left your job. And the only prospect you have on the horizon for the future... Is helping him set up the new kingdom, which he said is here now. Now, all of a sudden, he says, One of you will betray me. Within a moment, your appetite is suddenly gone. You feel a sinking feeling of despair in your gut, and your brain gets cloudy for a moment, unable to process the words as you squeak out, Is it me? Unsure if perhaps the lurking thoughts in the back of your mind, the ones you didn't think the Lord knew about, and yet he would sometimes call you out on them, thoughts like, I am the greatest. Or perhaps that feeling of temptation to sin. Would you act on them and betray Jesus? Is it I? Jesus then limits it to one of the closest disciples, to one of the twelve apostles, his most trusted and most intimate friends. Now before the rest of us in the room here think that we're somehow off the hook, that we don't need to wrestle with this question or grapple with its conclusions. Every disciple should ask the question, is it I? The answer is yes. Each and every one of us. Is it I, Lord? Will I betray you? Yes. It is true, Judas was the one who betrayed Christ. But the next morning, all the disciples would betray him. Judas betrayed him for greed, but the rest of the world would betray them from weakness, fear, and cowardice. But what about you and I? Each of us is a Judas because every sin against Christ is a personal act of betrayal. But listen, this is where the grace of the gospel light shines most clear and most bright Even those of us who betray this great King and glorious Savior, even us, even we, can be completely forgiven. You see, godly repentance will grieve over the terrible thing it has done, but then it flees always, always to Jesus. It flees to Jesus who took that sin on Himself at the cross. You see, Jesus was not surprised by His betrayal, I want to wrestle for a moment here with uh, verse 21. Look at it with me. It's the next point in this, Jesus wasn't surprised by it. He, he says something else here about Judas in verse 21. For the Son of Man goes that is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Listen, Jesus here, he refers to himself as Son of Man, which if you've been around for a while, you know that this is one of his favorite titles to give himself this comes from Daniel chapter 7. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not pass. Be destroyed. So Jesus is saying is as Daniel's son of man, that son of man who will receive all of these things from the ancient of days, from the Father. He's saying Jesus was predestined to be betrayed and crucified. You see, Jesus is wedding Daniel's uh, vision of an apocalyptic future to Isaiah's suffering servant from Isaiah chapter fifty-two. The next thing interesting here is that the one betraying the Lord Jesus was pitied. Notice, notice Jesus's posture towards Jesus' posture to, towards Judas is not one of anger or rebellion, but rather he says, woe to that man. Because even in this moment, Jesus loved and cared for Judas. Some of the implications on our lives around the ones that we fundamentally, wholeheartedly disagree with. Church family should be one of love. That's how we treat even those who would betray Christ. We love them. Number three here, the future judgment for Judas would be so terrible that it would have even been better had he not been born. Here we see that with those who know the truth, there becomes responsibility then of what you do with that truth that's why we're always that's why the gospel continually pushes us out into sharing the good news of the hope of the glory that we have in Christ lastly even though Judas's betrayal was ordained according to God's plan notice Jesus doesn't give him a free pass he's like well this is the way it is i don't know he is morally responsible for his own actions here Jesus will be betrayed and crucified according to God's plan, but this in no way relieved Judas of his responsibility and guilt. This is a divine mystery. We'll never fully comprehend it in our human understanding in this life, but we embrace the truth and the tension that divine sovereignty never cancels out human freedom or moral responsibility. Both are true, and we affirm them both. Lastly, Jesus prepared a last supper and began a new exodus. Look at verse 22. As they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. You see, as the host, the responsibility fell to Jesus to break the bread and to take the cup, giving thanks to God for rescuing his people and providing for their needs. But this is no ordinary Passover meal because Jesus makes this astonishing statement in here. He doesn't just remind them of all that God had done in the past of rescuing his people and providing for their needs in the wilderness. But he adds, this is my body, and this is my blood. You see, Jesus is right here inaugurating a new exodus, a new Passover event which all the church would celebrate from then on. This is what the prophet Jeremiah envisioned when he said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand and bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. You see, the Passover meal was this occasion where the Lord would take it and make it the Lord's Supper to be instituted. Tim Keller says this, he said, talking about the, uh, the Passover meal, he said it included four points at which the presider, holding a glass of wine, got up and explained the feast meeting. So if you were in the room, in Jewish culture, in Jesus' day, this is what would happen. The host would get up with his, with his wine and he would say, listen, here's why we've gathered together. There'd be four cups of wine representing the four promises made by God in Exodus chapter 6. These promises were for rescue from Egypt, God's promised, he has and will rescue, for freedom from slavery, for redemption by God's power, and for a renewed relationship with God. And the third, coven, the third cup, the third promise, comes at a point in the meal when almost everyone's completely eaten, completely filled, so you can think it's already getting late into the night, and Jesus stands up, and he says, he starts talking about redemption by God's power and renewed relationship with God. It's because Jesus' death, which is making possible a new and greater exodus than what the children of Egypt experienced. You see, you and I have been ransomed and rescued from the slavery to sin and to death. We are set free. This is a new Passover, a new exodus. What he says are the words of a madman. Think about it. Look at the text here with me. What he says are the words of a madman unless he is the Son of God and the true Passover Lamb. Breaking the bread, he blesses it and says, take it, this is my body. He takes a cup, blesses it, and they all drank from it. And he says, this is my blood that establishes the covenant. It is shed for many. The new covenant, like the old covenant, is a blood covenant that is shed for many. This, This tells us that the new covenant that we just talked about in Jeremiah 31 is made possible by the death of Isaiah's suffering servant for the Lord. And Isaiah says that he bore the sins of many and made intercession for their transgressors. Hebrews 8, actually speaks of a new covenant in greater detail where he's, he's talking about like this is so much better than. And the whole book of Hebrews is that the Jesus is better. right? Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus' covenant is better than the old covenant that a new and greater uh, Moses has come. If this is true church if this is the new past like how many of you ever went to a Passover meal? Anybody ever been to a Jewish Passover meal? I didn't think so. We got a couple there. Okay. Yeah, most of us, however, have not been. You ever think to yourself, well, why is that? We're we're Christians. We stand on the backs of uh, the writings of Moses, do we not? And yet we don't celebrate the Passover meal like they did. That's because we have a new and greater Passover This is a new and greater Exodus. A new and greater Moses is here. A new and greater Adam has come. If this is true, then as the children of Israel were freed from slavery, like physical, literal slavery in Egypt, then you and I are free from slavery to sin. We celebrate a greater Exodus. The problem is, when the Exodus happened from Egypt, do you think anybody stayed behind? You think there's any children of Israel that would be like, nah, I like this life actually. I got it made in the shade. Absolutely not. And they get to the wilderness and they start reminiscing and wishing they had it back there. You think it's better to bring us out here in the wilderness to die, Moses? But no one, no, one, no one waited around to see if this was true. Are we really set free? Now they embraced it. They, 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 they dove into it. They're like, we out of here. No more chains for us, Pharaoh. And yet, how many Christians do you know still living in the cage of sin even though the door is unlocked? How many Christians do you know who still struggle with great addictions to their sins. Not realizing that they've been set free. You see, the application for us with the new exodus is that we have been set free. The problem is we just don't live like it. Too many of us long for the sins of, of our past life and don't realize that that path only leads to death. Death. Now realizing that we have before us a path to life and godliness in Christ Jesus. So we are free. So in conclusion, Jesus is the sacrificial lamb of God who died for the sins of the world, which inaugurated for us a new exodus. And he did all of this in accordance with the will of God. You see, Jesus was always in control. He's in control right now. Whatever Whatever it is you're facing in life, whatever it is, struggle that's holding you down, like Jesus is in control. He's not, he, he's not surprised. I get surprised all the time, but not Jesus. Jesus is never surprised, always in control. He wasn't surprised by his betrayal. Listen, that means every time you sin, it's not like Jesus is like, are you kidding me? Again? Again, Re- again. I'm just imagining like how I argue with my children. Are you serious? He doesn't do that with us. Like, I'm surprised when my children blatantly disobey me. So much so that it gets it gets on my nerves. Now I know I'm 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 the only one who struggles with the, how they parent their child, but I'll just be honest. Like sometimes my kids do something that's so ridiculous. I like don't have words. I just look at Julie and be like Seriously? Are they thinking at all? Is their brain working? Obviously, this comes from your side of the family because we don't act that way in my family. And we're surprised, and yet Jesus was not surprised by his betrayal. Listen, this means for uh, when you sin, when you stumble, when you fall. Our default position is to try to avoid Jesus, avoid the church, avoid the ones who love us the most. Because we think that if if they somehow know that I'm such a screw-up, they're just gonna shake their heads at me. Listen, that's not true with Jesus. He has so much more for you because you are no longer bound to your sins and to your struggles, but you have new life in him, and yet he'll always accept you, love you. Jesus died when? In the future, or in the past? Not a trick question. I'm gonna get you guys vocal. He he died in the past, that's right, nearly 2,000 years ago. What does that mean about your sins in relation to that time event? Are all of your sins past or future sins at that point? They're future sins. When Jesus died on the cross with you in his mind, he knew all of your sins, all of them, all of them were future sins. And yet he died for them, bore the sins of many, you're like, well, yeah, but before Christ, I always said, of course he paid for those sins. No, no, no. Uh, we talked about it in Sunday school this morning. He says, oh, foolish Galatians, who have bewitched you? You who which began in the spirit, do you now think that you work it out according to the law? He says, no, it's by the spirit that we live. You see, in all of this, I'm saying that the Lord loves you. He's in control of your life right now. Nothing to surprise them. He's still in control. He's on the throne. He's not surprised by every time you fall in sin. And he calls you to loving repentance. and reminds you, you don't have to walk that way anymore. You don't have to do those things anymore. You have been free, completely set free in Christ. And the call to us, the challenge to us is, number one, do we believe it? How many of us live with a worldview that says we we give head knowledge and we just kind of nod that, yeah, of course Jesus is in control because he's God, but this is the real life, Pastor, day-to-day grind stuff. No, he's in control of even that. So do we believe that he's actually in control? And then do we live like it? Do we live as freed men and women, sons and daughters of the King? who no longer have to bow the knee to sin anymore because we've been set free. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we just openly repent here before you this morning anytime we've not believed this to be true. When we've imagined life is more, you just work through the bad and unsurprised by it, never actually intending it, We just wrestle with it this morning, Father, knowing that even in our worst days, you are still in control. The worst evils, atrocities, you are still in control. So we bow our hearts to you this morning and we repent for anywhere we haven't believed this to be true. And Father, Lord, we we realize that you have gifted us with the spirit that we can walk in a way that is not uh, bound to sin and chains anymore. But we get to walk new in life. We can love one another as you have loved us. Father, as we whisper the question, is it I? And we find ourselves guilty of betrayal, guilty of sin, though that we would run to the cross and not away from it. We would find in the arms of Jesus grace, which covers a multitude of sins. Father, as we set our hearts and our minds and our affections on resurrection weekend father i pray you would use the next few weeks to to bend our hearts and our minds and our wills to you lord we need you to do this work in us i pray we'd be obedient following you it's in christ's name we pray amen